Ah, sweet land of liberty. Our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinock. Well, for this topic, Dan, I'm reminded of the time when I was about eight years old, and I played the kid in the PBS version of The Emperor's New Clothes, the kid who points out that the emperor's in his underwear. And everybody's, you know, supposed to think he's got this wonderful outfit on and nobody's willing to to see the reality. Because this is, you know, we'll call this our emperor's got no clothes on show or something like that. Our guest today, communication director for Americans United for Separation of Church and State, Rob Boston, and we're going to talk about the visit of Pope Francis. Rob, thanks for being back with us on Freedom's Ring. Thanks for having me on, Alan. And, you know, the reason I call this my, you know, Emperor's New Clothes uh, kind of show is because, I mean, to most Americans, it's like the guy walks on water. You know, he was greatly loved. He made a wonderful impression on everybody. But uh, is there something unseemly about the mixing of church and state when you've got the leader of the largest religion in the world uh, coming and addressing Congress and, uh, you know, starting, you know, wading into politics and not just, uh, you know, not just encouraging people to to love God or to worship, but um, uh, really becoming a very profound political leader? Yeah, I think there are certainly some concerns to be raised about that. Uh, you know, I understand that millions of people around the globe look to Francis as a spiritual leader. And as you mentioned, he may have things to say to them about their relationship with God and their spiritual lives. But that doesn't necessarily expert on an array of political issues. And the assumption seemed to be, during Francis's visit here and his address to Congress, that he had that status too. And of course, in this country, we don't base our laws on religious understandings. They should be based on secular rationale. So I'm not sure what a high-profile religious leader has to bring to the table on some of those questions of politics. Maybe theology, but not politics. Look, as a Protestant, you know, I'm a Protestant. I have a lot of respect for the Catholic approach to public policy because, as a general matter, I think they're pretty smart about how they do things. Um, You know, as a Protestant, I'm not going to agree with them on everything, but I give you an example. They're consistently pro-life. So they're pro-life when it comes to birth and abortion type issues. They're pro-life when it comes to death, when it comes to euthanasia, uh, death penalty, nuclear war. They're consistent. Now, whether you agree with them or not, you know, that's another matter. Protestants are all over the map on some of these issues. So it's it's not out of a lack of respect, but the question is, uh, in America— we have a separation between church and state, and now we've got the leader of a large religion kind of throwing his weight around, uh, telling us what our policy should be in a kind and gentle way, perhaps. Uh, How do you see that? I think a lot of this problem goes back to the time during the Reagan administration where the U.S. and the Vatican established diplomatic ties formally. Uh, you know, there's this sort of fiction out there that the Vatican isn't the headquarters of a worldwide church, but it is a state. Now, 
you know, the Vatican is something like 110 acres in Rome. It's you know, a very small entity. Uh, yet we treat the Pope as if he were the same as president of another country or the prime minister. And that's where I think things are just getting a little bit silly. Uh, this man heads a church. He's a religious leader, like the head of any other church. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, when he comes here, he can't be afforded the same measure of respect we would give to any other religious leader. But pretending like he's the head of a state and having a formal diplomatic relationship with him, that troubles me because we don't have that kind of relationship with any other church. You know, there's not a diplomatic ambassador exchange with the United Church of Christ or the Southern Baptist Convention or the Worldwide Council of Churches. You know, Rob, since you bring up the whole issue of uh, when Reagan appointed an ambassador to the Vatican, I got to tell a very funny story. I'll tell it quickly. But uh, one of the, the leader of religious liberty for the Seventh-day Adventist Church for decades, since the 60s, a guy by the name of Dr. Bert Beach, who I'm sure you've met uh, and known well over the years, uh, Bert was very frustrated. He was on national television, and he was one of the lone voices speaking out against appointing an ambassador to the Vatican. And, you know, he's on, he's being interviewed on a national TV show, and he gets very frustrated. And he says, you know, they're not a proper state. They can't even procreate there. <laughs> you know, because it's all the, the cardinals and the bishops and the priests. They don't have, you know, husband and wives and families. There's no kids in the Vatican. It's not a real state. Anyway, it was just a hilarious moment. But, uh, you know, it, it highlights, you know, your point about the silliness of regarding the Vatican as a real state. It's a church. And we don't give churches that kind of political authority in our system, because we have so many different religions in this country. Exactly. And there's no reason why, to simply go back to recognizing it as a church, that would not preclude the Pope from visiting here. I mean, the Dalai Lama visits the United States, and he gives speeches, and uh, there's no pretending that he's running a state. So these religious leaders could still come here as religious leaders and do their thing and speak, but we wouldn't have this fiction that they're representing states. Now, there was one interesting thing about the Pope's recent visit that we, we learned from the previous visit of John Paul in the late 1970s. There were a number of instances during that visit where municipalities tried to spend public money on purely religious events. Like in Philadelphia, they wanted to actually erect a giant altar for the Pope. I remember. An outdoor mass. There was litigation over that. I think the ACLU brought that, and uh, that was struck down. There were things like, uh, you know, public resources being used to, 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 to shuttle people to and from religious events, schools closing, things like that. We were really looking out for that this time. And I have to say that things were much better, I think, because some of these municipalities were put on notice early on by our organization and others. Now, we wouldn't tolerate any public expenditure on purely religious events. Now, providing security, crowd control, you know, there are secular reasons for that, but, you know, not building altars and, and things like that for the use of a religious event. Well, and I think that's right. There are proper boundaries between church and state, and I think sometimes the kind of hostility that has been nurtured among conservatives against the institutional separation of church and state tends to blur um, the fact that, yeah, we may have some disagreement about where those boundaries lie and, and how to implement it, but it's clear we don't want the state 
um, interfering with the internal operations of the church. And at the same token, you know, the church has no special status to dictate, you know, its beliefs uh, to the state. And, you know, this is one of the things that I've often pointed out in this whole debate about homosexual rights and same-sex marriage. The church has every right to have their beliefs and to teach those beliefs. The state has no particular obligation to follow what the church thinks is the right way to go. Right, and I would argue also that governments should always be aware that any policy that is adopted needs to have a secular, that is a non-religious rationale behind it. Now, during the debate over same-sex marriage, uh, and, and I was down at the Supreme Court when that was argued, and one of the things I noticed was that the, the side that was arguing against same-sex marriage was having a difficult time really putting forth an argument as to why it should not be allowed, because so many of the arguments were rooted in religion. People would point to passages from the Bible, or they would point to uh, pastoral letters from past popes and encyclicals and, and this sort of stuff. Well, that's great for the people who belong to those religions, but it wasn't necessarily persuasive for everybody else. So the state there was challenged to find a secular rationale for these laws, and although that wasn't really a prominent part of the case, I think it kind of percolated along in the background and may have had some impact on what ultimately happened there. And I would extend that to really to lots of other issues as well. Uh, you know, people have strong feelings about issues like legal abortion and the use of the death penalty and even, you know, things like access to guns. And I've noticed there's a tendency in this, argue, in this country sometimes to use a religious argument as a kind of a trump card and to say, well, you know, the Bible says this, end of discussion. But it isn't so much what the Bible says, it's what somebody says they believe the Bible says <laughs> or thinks the Bible says. And what well, Robertson says the Bible says and what you say the Bible says are probably different things. You know, but what someone believes the Bible wisdom may be on a particular topic is fine for those who care about what the Bible says. Um, you know, we live in a pluralistic society, and, you know, people have all kinds of beliefs, and we have to figure out how we're all going to live together and each of us have the right to our own beliefs and, and to live according to our own values. That's the thing that is such a challenge today. And I'm not sure that giving Pope Francis an audience before Congress and that kind of special treatment that he received, I'm not sure that symbolically that fosters the uh, pursuit of the kind of pluralism where everybody's rights are going to be respected. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think one of the challenges we are facing right now as a country is, is exactly what you have said, this, this idea of true pluralism, not, not fake pluralism, which says, well, there, there's really like a layer of religions that are the favorite ones, and then everybody else is kind of, you know, in second-class citizenship, but we don't, we don't, you know, try to take away their rights. They're just not up there on that same plane. We need to get all of those religions and philosophies, I would argue, on an equal playing field with a, with a government that is saying that it doesn't play favorites, it doesn't have a particular theology that it is promoting, uh, and we have some work to do in that area. E even some of the kind of generalized uses of religion by the state that we become immune to, you know, under God and the Pledge of Allegiance and the In God We Trust stamped on money and appearing on government buildings and so on, that's increasingly problematic in a society that where more and more people are identifying as non-believers. So I think in the future, 
we need to go back and re-examine even some of those types of practices because they're going to be increasingly problematic as this country moves toward, I think, a, a much broader pluralism than it has experienced in the past. And that's where I think we're going. So, you know, I'm going to go ahead and disagree with you in terms of the, the kind of generic references to God, but, but let me articulate why I think those are actually useful in preserving what we like to think of as a republic, a republican form of government, because, you know, in all totalitarian societies, the state becomes essentially in the place of God. It's the highest authority, and there is no restraint on state power. In the United States, we've always had this notion, a government of limited delegated powers, and the idea that we all stand before God and face judgment, um, and just the concept that there is a divine judge uh, tends to have a restraining effect on the abuse of power. At least, we hope it does. Um, In a perfect world, perhaps, but I, I do want to understand I worry that some of those uses of religion by the state, in a very generic way, leads people to be desensitized to that reality. Uh, you know, it, it, you see in God we trust on money every day, and, and you, you recite it kind of by rote and the Pledge of Allegiance. Does it really sure. mean anything? You know, does it have true meaning anymore? I think there's some theologians have said that that is a concern, and I, I think they're on to something. Well, and your point is well taken. And, and Rob, you know, when I see in God we trust on the money, I wonder who, which God we worship, um, you know, the creator God or the, or the uh, mammon God. But anyway, we're out of time. Our guest today, Rob Boston, Director of Communications, Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Rob, uh, great to have you with us on Freedom's Ring today. Thank you so much. And as we close, uh, we just want to remind our listeners here at Freedom Spring, we offer help to those suffering religious discrimination. Uh, check out our legal resources page at churchstate.org. And you can listen to back shows on uh, SoundCloud, on iTunes. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring. Freedom Ring.